Welcome to the Tenable Research Podcast. This is the series where we hear about some of the work from Tenable Research directly from our researchers. Today, we have Luke Tamanyadar, Director of Engineering, and Satnam Narang, Staff Research Engineer, with our security response team. So to kick us off, we've got another over 100 Patch Tuesday. Yeah, thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me, as always. So Patch Tuesday was just yesterday, so we're still kind of just wrapping up and sort of looking at it from the rear view. But yeah, as you mentioned, it was another month of 100 patches. This is actually the sixth month in a row where Microsoft has released patches for over 100 CVEs. 17 of the vulnerabilities were rated as critical. It's actually the third month in a row where Microsoft has patched over 120 CVEs, just to kind of add that little note there. Um, And speaking of three months, this is actually the first time in three months where Microsoft has actually patched vulnerabilities that were exploited in the wild. So this month, there were actually two vulnerabilities exploited in the wild, in particular CV 2020-1380, which is a memory corruption vulnerability in Microsoft scripting engine. This actually applies to Internet Explorer. So when an attacker would need to socially engineer their victims into visiting a malicious website using Internet Explorer or opening up a malicious file that has an embedded ActiveX control in it that uses IE as its rendering engine. The other vulnerability exploited in the wild is CV 2020-1464. This is actually a Windows spoofing vulnerability in the way Windows mishandles validating file signatures. So if an attacker manages to utilize this vulnerability, they would be able to bypass security features that prevent improperly signed files from being loaded. In addition to these two vulnerabilities, the other noteworthy vulnerability from this month is actually one that's identified as CVE 2020-1337. So if you're LEET or 1337, then you probably love this CVE ID. Uh, This is an elevation of privilege vulnerability in Windows Print Spooler. It's actually a bypass for another CVE, CVE 2020-1048, also known as Print Demon. This was actually patched back in May of this year. Both 1048 and 1337 were discovered by the same researchers from Safe Breach Labs. However, 1337 is also credited to several other researchers. Uh, In the case of Safe Breach Labs, they actually presented their findings at uh, DEF CON and Black Hat earlier this month for 1337. Now, the reason a print spooler, I was going to say print spooner, print spooler vulnerability gets a lot of hype is because it has ties to the Stuxnet worm. Stuxnet used the print spooler vulnerability as part of its toolbox over a decade ago. So it's pretty interesting to see new research around this particular Windows service. And I do want to add that I think it kind of is interesting that this vulnerability with its identifier 1337 is kind of unique because people know it, it's LEET or 1337. It kind of stands up next to the one that we talked about, I think it was last month, which was uh, Palo Alto's CV 2020-2021. So if you're lucky enough to get a really nice CV ID, it really works in your favor. Yeah, I actually noticed printing was a a bit of a sub-theme within DEF CON this year. There were like three or four talks that specifically discussed printers and associated vulnerabilities and how they can be leveraged like this this LEET uh, vulnerability. So I don't know if it's... a a trend that we might see more of, or if it's just, this is an evergreen area that, um, you know, printers are the things that sit, like I have one in my, my office that I use maybe once a month, maybe less, but it's still on my network. It's still hanging out and I can't imagine I've ever updated it. Uh, but I'm also not an enterprise, so different threat models we'll say. 
Yeah, printers are pretty much going to be a part of every organization, every, you know, home office, especially now during COVID. So definitely an area that I think we'll continue to see research around. Yeah. And then next we've got a zero day for vBulletin. And this was another patch bypass vulnerability or a vulnerability that bypassed a patch. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So this one is a zero, a zero day, as you mentioned in uh, vBulletin. It was actually discovered by a researcher whose pseudonym is Xenofex. Uh, so they disclose this vulnerability. Uh, it's a pre-authentication or unauthenticated remote code execution vulnerability. So the term pre-auth or unauthenticated means that an attacker does not actually need to be able to log in to the forum or authenticate to it in order to exploit the vulnerability. So if you had to actually have an account on the forum that you're targeting, it might limit the impact, but because it's pre-auth or unauthenticated, it opens it up to a wide swath of forums that are out there. And when we checked, there are close to 20,000 uh, websites out there that use uh, vBulletin. So the vulnerability is identified as CVE, actually, excuse me, it actually does not have a CVE ID yet, but it's associated with CVE 2019-16759. A lot of CVEs got to keep track of which one's which whenever you're discussing them. So that vulnerability in particular was disclosed in September 2019. It was done so anonymously on like a public mailing list. So it was just sort of put out there and said, hey, there's a vulnerability in vBulletin. Here's a proof of concept exploit for it. And as predictably, we would expect once that POC was out there, attackers started leveraging it. Uh, in fact, it was actually used to take over the Komodo forums back in September. Uh, this particular bypass, as I mentioned, doesn't have a CV at the moment. It might by the time this podcast gets posted. So stay tuned. And if you want to find out what that CVE is, you can check out our blog for this. Um, so the reason it's a bypass for uh, 16759 is because that patch wasn't complete according to Xenofex. He managed to find another way to exploit the vulnerability by targeting a different template in vBulletin. And as soon as this vulnerability was actually disclosed by Xenofex, Jeff Moss, the founder of DEF CON and Black Hat, actually posted a tweet saying that their forums were targeted within three hours of it being disclosed. So DEF CON actually took down their forums in order to apply mitigation, and vBulletin also did the same. They actually responded to this disclosure within a day, so kudos to them for actually getting out and actually putting a patch out for this but there was a small window of time when attackers could potentially have taken advantage of it. Um, in their actual like mitigation instructions, both Zenefx and vBulletin provided two different mitigations if you can apply the patch. Unfortunately, if you do, it's gonna break some functionality on your vBulletin sites, but because the patch is actually out, we don't recommend applying the mitigations. We strongly encourage uh, site owners to actually upgrade to the latest version. Uh, one interesting fact about this vulnerability too that I wanted to mention was I saw a tweet from the maintainer of Black Sabbath's fan forums post that they decided to take down their forum altogether. And what was interesting was on the vBulletin forums, the uh, site owner for the Black Sabbath forums was actually in regular communication with the vBulletin administrators trying to find out about a patch availability. And they mentioned that they were, you know, feeling a little bit over, overly concerned about this vulnerability. So they decided to take their uh, forum down. And I thought it was interesting because if you're a Black Sabbath fan, they have a song called Paranoid. So I thought, you know, maybe put a little mention in the blog. Unfortunately, I don't think anybody really noticed it. 
That's the second month in a row you've made a music reference. And I think we should just make that a regular occurrence is just have like Sutham's Music Corner um, each month where we just add in a little nugget of, of music trivia. That that works for me, Claire. Um, no, that's, that's really interesting uh, to see the forum owners just be so proactive and really reaching out and engaging with the developers be like, Hey, we, we need a patch. We don't want our forum to be down for, you know, days or weeks while you develop this. And then V bulletin responding so quickly and getting a patch out there to everybody. All right. So the next one that I want to talk about is something that's very exciting to me. Um, last month we talked about the ripple 20 vulnerabilities and our research team did a little bit more work with that. And Satnam, can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, for context, Ripple 20 is actually a series of 19 vulnerabilities in a popular TCP IP software library developed by Trek Incorporated. Uh, these vulnerabilities were initially disclosed in June by researchers at JSOF Research Lab. Uh, the name Ripple 20 is intentional. The belief by JSOF was that this vulnerability would have a quote, ripple effect across operational technology or OT and Internet of Things or IoT during 2020. Uh, so they published their blog initially and we actually responded by publishing our own blog, basically just highlighting their findings. And since they actually, well, I should probably mention out of context here, that TCP, uh, TCP IP library has been spun off and rebranded. So it's been a bit challenging for JSOF to identify all the potential affected vendors that happen to use this library. So after that initial disclosure back in June, we reached out proactively to JSOF to talk about potentially collaborating on identifying additional affected vendors and devices. So on August 4th, we published a blog post providing an update on our own findings. So as of this month, we found about an additional 34 vendors or and 47 devices that are potentially affected by Ripple 20. And our blog post contains a list of those additional vendors and devices that have been contacted. Some have actually already confirmed that they are indeed infect, affected, while others are still going through their review process to review their, the findings that we shared with them. Uh, because we anticipate that there will be more of an impact from the discovery of vulnerable vendors and devices, we wanted to take a proactive approach to ensure we had more insight into the potential exposure of these vulnerabilities and to also provide our customers with plugins and product coverage to allow them to identify any vulnerable devices. Yeah, that, that level of collaboration for something like this is so cool to me. And it is actually a little bit of a teaser for some of the stuff that Luke is going to talk about later. Um, but yeah, the idea that organizations are banding together to tackle because like like you said, the the branches and the rebranding of a library like this makes it a really daunting task to discover everything that could be vulnerable and it's going to take more than one organization or one team to figure it out. So banding together and, and doing that is just, it makes me very happy to, to hear about. So uh, kudos to the team for that. All right. And then next we've got Boot Hole, which had a very cute logo um, and a name. So I think, I think organ, uh, researchers are getting a little more sparing and a little more fun with these logos and names. It's less, uh, you know, scattershot like it was for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, no ghosts for you this month. I know nope. a few months ago we talked about ghost ghost uh, logos for vulnerabilities, Spectre, Meltdown, 
uh, SMB ghosts, et cetera. So yeah, um, at the end of July, researchers disclosed a vulnerability in version two of the Grand Unified Bootloader, also known as GRUB2. Um, so this vulnerability is identified as CVE 2020-10713. They call this vulnerability boot hole because it affects the bootloader in Windows and Linux devices that use secure boot. So a bootloader is responsible for loading an operating system into memory when the system is booted up, hence bootloader. Now, as you might expect, attackers might try to tamper with this process of loading an operating system into memory. So to counteract this, a security standard known as Secure Boot was developed in order to confirm that the firmware that is loaded when a system is first booted up is trusted. So this vulnerability exists because as part of the Secure Boot process, the GRUB configuration file is actually not digitally signed. So this means that Secure Boot doesn't actually try to validate its trust. So an attacker could modify this file in a way that would give them a way to bypass secure boot indefinitely. However, exploitation is not that simple. So an attacker would need to already have gained administrative privileges on the vulnerable system or have physical access to it in order to exploit it. Now this research actually follows research from the Eclipsium CEO and CTO. By the way, shout out to the Eclipsium folks because they're the ones who discovered this vulnerability. Uh, their CEO and C CTO actually previously looked into Secure Boot back in 2013. So this is just a continuation of their research from back then. Now, as part of this disclosure process, Eclipsium notified affected vendors. One such vendor, Canonical, who produced the Linux distribution called Ubuntu, dug further into this Grub2 issue, and they discovered seven additional vulnerabilities, all of which were rated as medium. Now, the only way to address this vulnerability is for vendors to provide fixes to GRUB2. And so it's up to organizations to do their part and update their affected systems. All right, thanks. Um, yeah, it's it's another one of those where you might have to keep an eye on a particular vendor for those updates rather than having that central source just you know complicating this, this situation as we love it. All patching right. is hard. <laughs> yeah, it turns out sometimes, always, patching is complicated. Um, all right. So last but not least, we've got uh, some Cisco Adaptive Security Appliance vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for Cisco, the Adaptive Security Appliance, or ASA, also their Firepower Threat Defense, or FTD software, there was a vulnerability disclosed back in July. Uh, this software is used by ASA devices to protect corporate networks and data centers. And this flaw in particular was found by three different researchers. It's identified as CV 2020-3452. It's a read-only path traversal vulnerability. And actually, we've been seeing a lot of path, traver path traversal vulnerabilities lately. Uh, so this is a type of vulnerability where an attacker can send a crafted request to a vulnerable device via the web, allowing them to traverse other paths on the device, which may contain sensitive information. This may include login information or session details that they could then pivot to utilizing to gain control over an affected device. Now, the limitation with this particular vulnerability is that it's a read-only path traversal vulnerability. So that means an attacker can actually write files to the device's disk. Additionally, Cisco says that an attacker would only be able to access files when the device is configured to use either WebVPN or AnyConnect. And also an attacker would only be able to read software system files. They wouldn't be able to actually read underlying operating system files. And it's because of these limitations, the vulnerability only received a CVSSV3 score of 7.5. 
Now, I want to mention that one of the researchers uh, who actually was credited with discovering this flaw was also credited with finding a couple other notable path traversal vulnerabilities. Mikhail Klyuchnikov, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name and I apologize for that. Uh, he works for Positive Technologies. Uh, he's actually found vulnerabilities in Citrix and F5, both were, which were path traversal flaws. These were huge. These were CVSS 9.8, huge vulnerabilities that had tremendous impact. Um, obviously, this one is a little bit different than those because those were huge. This one's a little more uh, less, less impactful because, as I mentioned, it's read-only, and you can only read files from the uh, software system and not the underlying operating system. One of the other researchers who actually found this bug, uh, Ahmed Abul Ila, he posted a few proof of concept snippets on his Twitter. So the actual POCs are so small that he could actually put them, put them into his uh, tweets. So definitely organizations that are running ASA or FTD in your network, you should apply these patches nonetheless, even if the CVSS score is a 7.5. Great, thanks for that. All right, so that's the news we've had so far this month. Now it is time to speak to our next guest. And we have Luke, with, who is our director of engineering, and he does a lot of really cool stuff, but I will let him tell us. So it's your first time joining us on the podcast. Tell me a little bit more about your team and what you do. Claire, thanks for having me. Uh, so first thing I always tell everyone is uh, trying to automate everything uh, that we can. Um, I have uh, several teams working on different areas of automation. Um, uh, two of the team's team leads, uh, Juliana and Ryan, have been on the podcast before to talk about what their teams work on. Um, the core team that I'm overseeing right now uh, is really focused on the automated creation and uh, validation and release of Nessus plugins, uh, as well as plugins for our other sensors. Yeah, that's that's a pretty big task and a pretty valuable one is is the faster we can develop and release plugins, the better it's going to be for everyone involved. So that's that's a pretty big project. Um, what are some specific projects under that that your team's working on lately? Uh, one of the areas of focus for us right now, um, you know, it's great to automatically create the content, uh, but we want to maintain the quality that we've always had in the past. Uh, and to do that, we have to make sure that we are able to validate the, what we're creating, uh, test it, um, you know, ensure the code quality is up to par, um, uh, and ensure the content's in there. Uh, so in terms of the content, a lot of times when we're uh, generating plugins, um, the data for the CVEs isn't published to MVD. Um, in some cases, the vendors will provide CVSS data for uh, you know, version three CV of CVSS. Um, our plugins still use V2 and V3. Uh, so we've, uh, partnering with um, Juliana's team, um, uh, have a capability now to read through the description and generate CVSS vectors uh, based on historical data uh, that we can use in the plugin so that when we release plugins, we're not putting in an arbitrary risk factor. We're able to provide actual CVSS metrics uh, for those vulnerabilities. Um, another area we're focusing on uh, in the quality is our live test framework. So when we generate a plugin for, you know, Mozilla Firefox, uh, being able to spin up test targets, run scans against them, against them, make sure that we still detect it properly, make sure, um, you know, the plugins are firing correctly for vulnerable and not vulnerable targets. Um, and then just expanding our code quality tools so that, um, 
you know, we make sure that the plugins follow our uh, code standards uh, because all of the plugin writers work in Nazzle. Uh, there aren't existing tools that we can just use to do the code quality testing. So we've developed our own. Yeah. Having to build your own tools to do things is something I hear a lot about in security. It's like, oh, we need a tool to do this. It doesn't exist. And then then you get to the point where it's like, why do we have 7,000 tools to do all of these things? Um, so with the CVSS uh, vector description, um, what are some of those keywords that, you know, impact that analysis? You know, what are, what are some things the algorithm is looking for when it's determining the severity? Um, yeah, so there's, there's a number of sort of obvious ones, you know, you know, cross-site scripting vulnerability uh, is pretty much always going to have the same CVSS vector. There's a few edge cases, whether it requires administrative privileges or login or not, um, you know, buffer overflows, uh, things like that um, allow us to get a bulk of, you know, most of the CVEs, there's always edge cases where there's not enough content or it's something we just haven't really looked, uh, seen before. Um, but those really allow us to get the core ones, uh, as Satna mentioned, you know, path traversals, um, whether it's read-only or file upload. Um, it's a fairly consistent uh, pattern that we're able to use. Yeah, that that is really helpful. And it, it is one of the things that can be a... Uh, that InfoSec can do pretty well. Sometimes they stumble, but having those common terminologies of like cross-site scripting, we we know what that means and what that entails. Other terminologies uh, we'll not get into here because they're not agreed upon, but things like cross-site scripting, path traversal, we're able to create that script based off of it and have that mutual understanding. So with that kind of leads into something else that you and I've talked about a little bit, but um, it's the idea of these advisories coming out. It helps if they've got good descriptions. Um, and when they don't have good descriptions, it makes it harder for you to do this kind of work. So can you give me a little preview of that? I know we have some other stuff in the pipeline to discuss this, but let's, let's get the, yeah. the um, so I think it's a balance that, you know, vendors are trying to walk and, you know, security researchers as well of, you know, Vendors want to provide information to the customers, but they don't want to give too much away in case an attacker, you know, takes advantage of all that information. Um, but the reality is there's too many vulnerabilities for everyone to prioritize. Uh, and having those good descriptions helps customers understand what's the actual risk of this vulnerability. Um, and, you know, so there's some, some vendors have short or essentially non-existent descriptions. Some have very verbose ones. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're working with a couple vendors uh, trying to help uh, improve their, you know, vendor advisories, provide some feedback to say, you know, if you know, this sort of information would help, uh, help our mutual customers get a better handle on what they need to prioritize, uh, helps us get the content out there more quickly. Um, those partnerships are proving extremely valuable uh, and we're working on building out more and more as we go. Yeah, the better advisories uh, definitely help customers and other organizations like ourselves defend ourselves and our systems and our customer system. So yeah, more, more information, the better. All right. So with that, what's one thing you think listeners should know about your team and how it works? I think that the, the most important thing for uh, 
this team and uh, all of my teams, uh, as well as research, is the collaboration that we really focus on. Um, you know, the engineers that are building out our automation—they're not plugin writers. They're not, you know, uh, researchers by trade, so they don't know the space as well. Um, the plugin writers, you know, they can write code, they're writing the plugins, uh, but building a full infrastructure around uh, automation, you know, that's not their day to day. Um, so the teams work extremely closely together, um, you know, when we're generating new plugins that we've written manually in the past, the um, engineering teams will work with the researchers to make sure what we're producing is right, uh, create better templates to work off of for consistency. Um, as I mentioned, uh, all the engineering teams are working closely together. Um, it's not just, you know, if we want to do CVSS prediction, we go and do it ourselves. Um, we leverage, you know, the work that Juliana's team has uh, to provide some input. Um, you know, also working on edge cases where, you know, the core system we have for doing that can't operate on some advisories because they just don't have enough data. So we um, have developed some special handling for those where for that, particular vendor, we know enough about their patterns that we can do, we can handle them uh, in special edge cases. The collaboration is really critical for us to move quickly and uh, deliver everything we're aiming to deliver. Yeah, and that collaboration just isn't internal. Sometimes it is external and partnering with those vendors. Yep. Um, yeah, we've had uh, a couple of vendor partnerships that we're working on, uh, like I said, building out more. Um, those have really allowed us to look at the plugins that we've uh, written in the past for those vendors. Uh, and, you know, especially in some of the cases, um, you know, dealing with support tickets where the customers will open up tickets with us and with the vendor and realizing that we can improve things for both sides and for the customer if we work together and, um, you know, they can improve what they provide us in the advisories uh, and we can improve what we're checking in the, uh, plugins. Uh, one of the biggest challenges as plugin writers is, you know, you're writing uh, checks for software that, you know, is installed by dedicated staff that have long time experience setting up the software can have, you know, countless different configurations. And we have to set it up in, you know, a day or two, figure out how to install it, detect it, do everything quickly. So um, there's always trade-offs with making sure we have everything covered and working with the vendors that allows us to do that a lot more accurately. Yeah, the vendor is going to know those those configuration and those deployment edge cases or even just standard variants so much better than our plugin writers will. Um, so getting the experts in on the process always makes things move a lot more smoothly. Yep. Great. That's I, I love to hear what we're doing with automation because it is it sounds like magic to me because it's it's math and science applied well is magic. Um, any any last thoughts? Any last things you'd like to add about our our teams working on automation? Um, nope. Great, awesome. Thank you so much for joining. And Satnam, thank you as always for being with us. Thanks, Claire.